Chapter 5 Prostetnik Vogon Jelts was not a pleasant sight, even for other Vogons. His highly domed nose rose high above a small piggy forehead. His dark green rubbery skin was thick enough for him to play the game of Vogon civil service politics and play it well, and waterproof enough for him to survive indefinitely at sea depths of down to a thousand feet with no ill effects. Not that he ever went swimming, of course. His busy schedule would not allow it. He was the way he was because billions of years ago, when the Vogons had first crawled out of the sluggish primeval seas of Vogsphere and had lain panting and heaving on the planet's virgin shores, when the first rays of the bright young Vogsol sun had shone across them that morning, it was as if the forces of evolution had simply given up on them there and then, had turned aside in disgust and written them off as an ugly and unfortunate mistake. They never evolved again. They should never have survived. The fact that they did is some kind of tribute to the thick-willed, slug-brained stubbornness of these creatures. Evolution? they said to themselves, who needs it? And what nature refused to do for them, they simply did without, until such time as they were able to rectify the gross anatomical inconveniences with surgery. Meanwhile, the natural forces on the planet Vogsphere had been working overtime to make up for their earlier blunder. They brought forth scintillating jeweled scuttling crabs, which the Vogons ate, smashing their shells with iron mallets. Tall, aspiring trees of breathtaking slenderness and colour, which the Vogons cut down and burned the crab meat with. Elegant, gazelle-like creatures with silken coats and dewy eyes, which the Vogons would catch and sit on. They were no use as transport because their backs would snap instantly, but the Vogons sat on them anyway. Thus the planet Vogsphere whiled away the unhappy millennia until the Vogons suddenly discovered the principles of interstellar travel. Within a few short Vog years, every last Vogon had migrated to the Megabrantis Cluster, the political hub of the galaxy, and now formed the immensely powerful backbone of the galactic civil service. They've attempted to acquire learning— they have attempted to acquire style and social graces, but in most respects the modern Vogon is little different from his primitive forebears. Every year they import 27,000 scintillating jeweled scuttling crabs from their native planet and while away a happy drunken night, smashing them to bits with iron mallets. Prostetnik Vogon Jelts was a fairly typical Vogon in that he was thoroughly vile. Also, he did not like hitchhikers. Somewhere in a small, dark cabin buried deep in the intestines of Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz's flagship, a small match flared nervously. The owner of the match was not a Vogon, but he knew all about them and was right to be nervous. His name was Ford Prefect. 
Ford Prefect's original name is only pronounceable in an obscure Beetlejuicean dialect, now virtually extinct since the great collapsing Harung disaster of galactic sidereal year 03758, which wiped out all the old Praxi Beetle communities on Beetlejuice 7. Ford's father was the only man on the entire planet to survive the great collapsing Harung disaster, by an extraordinary coincidence that he was never able satisfactorily to explain. The whole episode is shrouded in deep mystery. In fact, no one ever knew what a harung was, nor why it had chosen to collapse on Beetlejuice 7 particularly. Ford's father, magnanimously waving aside the clouds of suspicion that had inevitably settled around him, came to live on Beetlejuice 5, where he both fathered and uncled Ford. In memory of his now-dead race, he christened him in the ancient Praxi Beetle tongue. Because Ford never learned to say his original name, his father eventually died of shame, which is still a terminal disease in some parts of the galaxy. The other kids at school nicknamed him Ix, which in the language of Beetlejuice 5 translates as Boy who is not able satisfactorily to explain what a harung is, nor why it should choose to collapse on Beetlejuice 7. Ford looked about the cabin, but could see very little. Strange, monstrous shadows loomed and leaped with the tiny flickering flame, but all was quiet. He breathed a silent thank you to the Dentrassi. The Dentrassi are an unruly tribe of gourmands, a wild but pleasant bunch whom the Vogons had recently taken to employing as catering staff on their long-haul fleets, on the strict understanding that they keep themselves very much to themselves. This suited the Dentrassi fine because they loved Vogon money, which is one of the hardest currencies in space, but loathed the Vogons themselves. The only sort of Vogon a Dentrassi liked to see was an annoyed Vogon. It was because of this tiny piece of information that Ford Prefect was now not a whiff of hydrogen, ozone, and carbon monoxide. He heard a slight groan. By the light of the match, he saw a heavy shape moving slightly on the floor. Quickly, he shook the match out, reached in his pocket, found what he was looking for, and took it out. He ripped it open and shook it. He crouched on the floor. The shape moved again. Ford Prefect said, I bought some peanuts. Arthur Dent moved and groaned again, muttering incoherently. Here, have some, urged Ford, shaking the packet again. If you've never been through a matter-transference beam before, you've probably lost some salt and protein. The beer you had should have cushioned your system a bit. <sighs> said Arthur Dent. He opened his eyes. It's dark, he said. Yes, said Ford Prefect. It's dark. No light, said Arthur Dent. Dark. No light. One of the things Ford Prefect had always found hardest to understand about humans was their habit of continually stating and repeating the very, very obvious, as in, It's a nice day, or You're very tall, or Oh dear, you seem to have fallen down a thirty-foot well, are you all right? 
At first, Ford had formed a theory to account for this strange behaviour. If human beings don't keep exercising their lips, he thought, their mouths probably seize up. After a few months' consideration and observation, he abandoned this theory in favour of a new one. If they don't keep on exercising their lips, he thought, their brains start working. After a while, he abandoned this one as well, as being obstructively cynical, and decided he quite liked human beings after all. But he always remained desperately worried about the terrible number of things they didn't know about. Yes, he agreed with Arthur. No light. He helped Arthur to some peanuts. How do you feel? he asked him. Like a military academy, said Arthur. Bits of me keep on passing out. Ford stared at him blankly in the darkness. If I asked you where the hell we were, said Arthur weakly, would I regret it? Ford stood up. We're safe, he said. Oh, good, said Arthur. We're in a small galley cabin, said Ford, in one of the spaceships of the Vogon constructor fleet. Ah said Arthur. This is obviously some strange usage of the word safe that I wasn't previously aware of. Ford struck another match to help him search for a light switch. Monstrous shadows leaped and loomed again. Arthur struggled to his feet and hugged himself apprehensively. Hideous alien shapes seemed to throng about him. The air was thick with musty smells which sidled into his lungs without identifying themselves, and a low, irritating hum kept his brain from focusing. "'How did we get here?' he asked, shivering slightly. "'We hitched a lift,' said Ford. "'Excuse me?' said Arthur. "'Are you trying to tell me that we just stuck out our thumbs "'and some green bug-eyed monster stuck his head out and said, "'Hi, fellas, hop right in. "'I can take you as far as the Basingstoke roundabout.' "'Well,' said Ford, "'the thumbs an electronic sub-ether signalling device, "'the roundabouts at Barnard Star, six light-years away, "'but otherwise that's more or less right. "'And the bug-eyed monster is green, yes.' Fine, said Arthur. When can I go home? You can't, said Ford Prefect, and found the light switch. Shade your eyes, he said, and turned it on. Even Ford was surprised. Good grief, said Arthur. Is this really the interior of a flying saucer? Prostetnik Vogon Jelts heaved his unpleasant green body round the control bridge. He always felt vaguely irritable after demolishing populated planets. He wished that someone would come and tell him that it was all wrong, so that he could shout at them and feel better. He flopped as heavily as he could onto his control seat in the hope that it would break and give him something to be genuinely angry about, but it only gave a complaining sort of creak. Go away, he shouted at a young Vogon guard who entered the bridge at that moment. The guard vanished immediately, feeling rather relieved. He was glad it wouldn't now be him who delivered the report they'd just received. The report was an official release 
which said that a wonderful new form of spaceship drive was at this moment being unveiled at a government research base on Damagran, which would henceforth make all hyperspatial express routes unnecessary. Another door slid open, but this time the Vogon captain didn't shout because it was the door from the galley quarters where the Dentrassi prepared his meals. A meal would be most welcome. A huge furry creature bounded through the door with his lunch tray. It was grinning like a maniac. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz was delighted. He knew that when a Dentrassi looked that pleased with itself, there was something going on somewhere on the ship that he could get very angry indeed about. Ford and Arthur stared around them. Well, what do you think? said Ford. It's a bit squalid, isn't it? Ford frowned at the grubby mattresses, unwashed cups, and unidentifiable bits of smelly alien underwear that lay around the cramped cabin. Well, this is a working ship, you see, said Ford. These are the Dentrassi's sleeping quarters. I thought you said they were called Vogons or something. Yes, said Ford. The Vogons run the ship. The Dentrassis are the cooks. They let us on board. I'm confused, said Arthur. Here, have a look at this, said Ford. He sat down on one of the mattresses and rummaged about in his satchel. Arthur prodded the mattress nervously and then sat on it himself. In fact, he had very little to be nervous about, because all mattresses grown in the swamps of Squanchulus Zeta are very thoroughly killed and dried before being put to service. Very few have ever come to life again. Ford handed the book to Arthur. What is it? asked Arthur. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a sort of electronic book. It tells you everything you need to know about anything. That's its job. Arthur turned it over nervously in his hands. I like the cover, he said. Don't panic. It's the first helpful or intelligible thing anybody's said to me all day. I'll show you how it works, said Ford. He snatched it from Arthur, who was still holding it as if it were a two-week dead lark, and pulled it out of its cover. You press this button here, you see, and the screen lights up, giving you the index. A screen, about three inches by four, lit up, and characters began to flicker across the surface. You want to know about Vogons? So I entered that name, so. His fingers tapped some more keys. And there we are. The words Vogon Constructor Fleets flared in green across the screen. Ford pressed a large red button at the bottom of the screen, and words began to undulate across it. At the same time, the book began to speak the entry as well, in a still, quiet, measured voice. This is what the book said. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here is what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy, not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous.
They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bugblatter beast of Trahl without orders, signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat for three months and recycled as firelighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is to stick your finger down his throat, and the best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to the ravenous bugblatter beast of Trowl. On no account allow a Vogon to read poetry at you. Arthur blinked at it. What a strange book. How did we get a lift, then? That's the point. It's out of date now said Ford, sliding the book back into its cover. I'm doing the field research for the new revised edition, and one of the things I'll have to do is include a bit about how the Vogons now employ Dentrassy cooks, which gives us a rather useful little loophole. A pained expression crossed Arthur's face. But who are the Dentrassies? he said. Great guys, said Ford. They're the best cooks and the best drink mixers, and they don't give a wet slap about anything else. And they'll always help hitchhikers aboard, partly because they like the company, but mostly because it annoys the Vogons, which is exactly the sort of thing you need to know if you're an impoverished hitchhiker trying to see the marvels of the universe for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day. And that's my job. Fun, isn't it? Arthur looked lost. It's amazing, he said, and frowned at one of the other mattresses. Unfortunately, I got stuck on the earth for rather longer than I intended, said Ford. I came for a week and got stuck for fifteen years. But how did you get there in the first place, then? Easy. I got a lift with a teaser. A teaser? Yeah. Um, what is... A teaser? Uh, teasers are usually rich kids with nothing to do. They cruise around looking for planets that haven't made interstellar contact yet and buzz them. Buzz them? Arthur began to feel that Ford was enjoying making life difficult for him. Yeah, said Ford. They buzz them. They find some isolated spot with very few people around, then land right by some poor, unsuspecting soul whom no one's ever going to believe, and then strut up and down in front of him wearing silly antennas on their head and making beep-beep noises. Rather childish, really. Ford leaned back on the mattress with his hands behind his head and looked infuriatingly pleased with himself. "'Ford?' insisted Arthur. I don't know if this sounds like a silly question, but what am I doing here? Well, you know that, said Fort. I rescued you from the earth. And what's happened to the earth? Ah, it's been demolished. Has it? said Arthur levelly. Yes, it just boiled away into space. Look, said Arthur, I'm a bit upset about that. Ford frowned to himself and seemed to roll the thought around his mind. Yes, I can understand that, he said at last. Understand that, shouted Arthur. Understand that. Ford sprang up. Keep looking at the book, he hissed urgently. What? Don't panic. I'm not panicking. Yes, you are. All right, so I'm panicking. What else is there to do? You just come along with me, 
and have a good time. The galaxy's a fun place. You'll need to have this fish in your ear. I beg your pardon? asked Arthur, rather politely, he thought. Ford was holding up a small glass jar, which quite clearly had a small yellow fish wriggling around in it. Arthur blinked at him. He wished there was something simple and recognisable he could grasp hold of. He would have felt safe if, alongside the Dentrasse's underwear, the piles of squanchulous mattresses, and the man from Beetlejuice holding up a small yellow fish and offering to put it in his ear— he had been able to see just a small packet of cornflakes. But he couldn't, and he didn't feel safe. Suddenly, a violent noise leaped at them from no source that he could identify. He gasped in terror at what sounded like a man trying to gargle while fighting off a pack of wolves. Shh, said Ford. Listen, it might be important. Im important? It's the Vogon captain making an announcement on the tannoy. You mean that's how the Vogons talk? Listen. But I can't speak Vogon. You don't need to. Just put this fish in your ear. Ford, with a lightning movement, clapped his hand to Arthur's ear, and he had the sudden sickening sensation of the fish slithering deep into his oral tract. Gasping with horror, he scrabbled at his ear for a second or so, but then slowly turned goggle-eyed with wonder. He was experiencing the oral equivalent of looking at a picture of two black silhouetted faces and suddenly seeing it as a picture of a white candlestick, or of looking at a lot of coloured dots on a piece of paper which suddenly resolve themselves into the figure six— and mean that your optician is going to charge you a lot of money for a new pair of glasses. He was still listening to the howling gargles, he knew that. Only now, it had somehow taken on the semblance of perfectly straightforward English. This is what he heard. Chapter 6 Howl, howl, gurgle, 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 howl, 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 gurgle, 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 howl, slab, slab, howl, howl, should have a good time. Message repeats. This is your captain speaking, so stop whatever you're doing and pay attention. First of all, I see from our instruments that we have a couple of hitchhikers aboard. Hello, wherever you are. I just want to make it totally clear that you are not at all welcome. I worked hard to get where I am today, and I didn't become captain of a Vogon constructor ship simply so I could turn it into a taxi service for a load of degenerate freeloaders. I have sent out a search party, and as soon as they find you, I will put you off the ship. If you are very lucky... I might read you some of my poetry first. Secondly, we are about to jump into hyperspace for the journey to Barnard's Star. On arrival, we will stay in dock for a 72-hour refit, and no one's to leave the ship during that time. I repeat, all planet leave is cancelled. I've just had an unhappy love affair, so I don't see why anybody else should have a good time. 
Message ends. The noise stopped. Arthur discovered to his embarrassment that he was lying curled up in a small ball on the floor with his arms wrapped round his head. He smiled weakly. Charming man, he said. I wish I had a daughter so I could forbid her to marry one. You wouldn't need to, said Ford. They've got as much sex appeal as a road accident. No, don't move, he added, as Arthur began to uncurl himself. You'd better be prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly like being drunk. What's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. Arthur thought about this. Ford, he said. Yeah? What's this fish doing in my ear? It's translating for you. It's a babel fish. Look it up in the book, if you like. He tossed over the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and then curled himself up into a fetal ball to prepare himself for the jump. At that moment, the bottom fell out of Arthur's mind. His eyes turned inside out. His feet began to leak out of the top of his head. The room folded flat around him, spun around, shifted out of existence, and left him sliding into his own navel. They were passing through hyperspace. The Babelfish, said the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy quietly, is small, yellow, and leech-like, and probably the oddest thing in the universe. It feeds on brainwave energy received not from its own carrier, but from those around it. It absorbs all unconscious mental frequencies from this brainwave energy to nourish itself with. It then excretes into the mind of its carrier a telepathic matrix formed by combining the conscious thought frequencies with nerve signals picked up from the speech centers of the brain which has supplied them. The practical upshot of all this is that if you stick a babelfish in your ear, you can instantly understand anything said to you in any form of language. The speech patterns you actually hear decode the brainwave matrix which has been fed into your mind by your babelfish. Now, it is such a bizarrely improbable coincidence that anything so mind-bogglingly useful could have evolved purely by chance that some thinkers have chosen to see it as a final and clinching proof of the non-existence of God. The argument goes something like this. I refuse to prove that I exist, says God, for proof denies faith, and without faith I am nothing. But, says man, the Babelfish is a dead giveaway, isn't it? It could not have evolved by chance. It proves you exist, and so therefore, by your own arguments, you don't. Q.E.D. Oh dear, says God, I hadn't thought of that, and promptly vanishes in a puff of logic. Oh, that was easy, says man, and for an encore, goes on to prove that black is white, and gets himself killed on the next pedestrian crossing. Most leading theologians claim that this argument is a load of dingo's kidneys, but that didn't stop Ulon Kalufid making a small fortune when he used it as the central theme of his best-selling book, Well, That About Wraps It Up For God. Meanwhile, the poor Babelfish, by effectively removing all barriers to communication between different races and cultures, has caused more and bloodier wars than anything else in the history of creation. Arthur 
let out a low groan. He was horrified to discover that the kick through hyperspace hadn't killed him. He was now six light-years from the place that the Earth would have been if it still existed. The Earth. Visions of it swam sickeningly through his nauseated mind. There was no way his imagination could feel the impact of the whole Earth having gone. It was too big. He prodded his feelings by thinking that his parents and his sister had gone. No reaction. He thought of all the people he had been close to. No reaction. Then he thought of a complete stranger he had been standing behind in the queue at the supermarket two days before, and felt a sudden stab. The supermarket was gone. Everyone in it was gone. Nelson's column had gone. Nelson's column had gone, and there would be no outcry, because there was no one left to make an outcry. From now on, Nelson's column only existed in his mind. England only existed in his mind. His mind, stuck here in this dank, smelly, steel-lined spaceship. A wave of claustrophobia closed in on him. England no longer existed. He had got that. Somehow he had got it. He tried again. America, he thought, has gone. He couldn't grasp it. He decided to start smaller again. New York has gone. No reaction. He'd never seriously believed it existed anyway. The dollar, he thought, has sunk forever. Slight tremor there. Every Bogart movie has been wiped, he said to himself, and that gave him a nasty knock. McDonald's, he thought. There is no longer any such thing as a McDonald's hamburger. He passed out. When he came round a second later, he found he was sobbing for his mother. He jerked himself violently to his feet. Ford! Ford looked up from where he was sitting in a corner, humming to himself. He always found the actual travelling through space part of space travel rather trying. Yeah, he said. If you're a researcher on this book thing and you were on Earth, you must have been gathering material on it. Well, I was able to extend the original entry a bit, yes. Let me see what it says in this edition, then. I've got to see it. Yeah, OK. He passed it over again. Arthur grabbed hold of it and tried to stop his hands shaking. He pressed the entry for the relevant page. The screen flashed and swirled and resolved into a page of print. Arthur stared at it. It doesn't have an entry, he burst out. Ford looked over his shoulder. Yes, it does, he said. Down there. See, at the bottom of the screen. Just above Eccentrica Galumbits, the triple-breasted whore of Eroticon Six. Arthur followed Ford's finger and saw where it was pointing. For a moment, it still didn't register. Then his mind nearly blew up. What? Harmless? Is that all it's got to say? Harmless? One word? Ford shrugged. Well, there are a hundred billion stars in the galaxy and only a limited amount of space in the book's microprocessors, he said. And no one knew much about the Earth, of course. Well, for God's sake, I hope you managed to rectify that a bit. 
Oh, yes. Well, I managed to transmit a new entry off to the editor. He had to trim it a bit, but it's still an improvement. And what does it say now? asked Arthur. Mostly harmless, admitted Ford with a slightly embarrassed cough. Mostly harmless, shouted Arthur. What was that noise? hissed Ford. It was me shouting, shouted Arthur. No, shut up, said Ford. I think we're in trouble. You think we're in trouble? Outside the door were the clear sounds of marching footsteps. The Dentressi, whispered Arthur. No, those are steel-tipped boots, said Ford. There was a sharp, ringing rap on the door. Then who is it? said Arthur. Well, said Ford, if we're lucky, it's just the Vogons come to throw us into space. And if we're unlucky? If we're unlucky, said Ford grimly. The captain might be serious in his threat that he's going to read us some of his poetry first. Chapter 7 Vogon Poetry is, of course, the third worst in the universe. The second worst is that of the Asgoths of Crea. During a recitation by their poet-master Grinthos the Flatulent of his poem Ode to a Small Lump of Green Putty I Found in My Armpit One Midsummer Morning, four of his audience died of internal hemorrhaging, and the president of the Mid-Galactic Arts Nobling Council survived by gnawing one of his own legs off. Grunthos is reported to have been disappointed by the poem's reception, and was about to embark on a reading of his twelve-book epic, entitled My Favourite Bath-Time Gurgles, when his own major intestine, in a desperate attempt to save life and civilization, leaped straight up through his neck and throttled his brain. The very worst poetry of all perished along with its creator, Paula Nancy Millstone Jennings of Greenbridge, Essex, England, in the destruction of the planet Earth. Prostetnik Vogon Jeltz smiled very slowly. This was done not so much for effect as because he was trying to remember the sequence of muscle movements. He had had a terribly therapeutic yell at his prisoners and was now feeling quite relaxed and ready for a little callousness. The prisoners sat in poetry appreciation chairs, strapped in. Vogon suffered no illusions as to the regard their works were generally held in. Their early attempts at composition had been part of a bludgeoning insistence that they be accepted as a properly evolved and cultured race, but now the only thing that kept them going was sheer bloody-mindedness. The sweat stood out cold on Ford Prefect's brow and slid round the electrodes strapped to his temples. These were attached to a battery of electronic equipment, imagery intensifiers, rhythmic modulators, alliterative residulators, and simile dumpers, all designed to heighten the experience of the poem and make sure that not a single nuance of the poet's thought was lost. Arthur Dent sat and quivered. He had no idea what he was in for, but he knew that he hadn't liked anything that had happened so far, and didn't think things were likely to change. The Vogon began to read, a fetid little passage of his own devising. 
Oh, freckled grunt bugly, he began. Spasms racked Ford's body. This was worse than even he'd been prepared for. Thy micturations are to me as plurdled gabble blotchets on a lurgid bee. went Ford Prefect, wrenching his head back as lumps of pain thumped through it. He could dimly see beside him Arthur lolling and rolling in his seat. He clenched his teeth. Group, I implore thee, continued the merciless Vogon, my foonting, turling drones. His voice was rising to a horrible pitch of impassioned stridency and hoopsiously drangle me with crinkly bindle-wordles, or I will rend thee in the gobberwots with my blurgle-crunchin'. See if I don't. <coughs> cried Ford Prefect, and threw one final spasm as the electronic enhancement of the last line caught him full blast across the temples. He went limp. Arthur lolled. Now, earthlings, whirred the Vogon. He didn't know that Ford Prefect was in fact from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice, and wouldn't have cared if he had. I present you with a simple choice. Either die in the vacuum of space, or... He paused for melodramatic effect. Tell me how good you thought my poem was. He threw himself backward into a huge, leathery, bat-shaped seat and watched them. He did the smile again. Ford was rasping for breath. He rolled his dusty tongue round his parched mouth and moaned. Arthur said brightly, Actually, I quite liked it. Ford turned and gaped. Here was an approach that had quite simply not occurred to him. The Vogon raised a surprised eyebrow that effectively obscured his nose and was therefore no bad thing. Oh, good, he whirred in considerable astonishment. Oh, yes, said Arthur. I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was really particularly effective. Ford continued to stare at him, slowly organising his thoughts around this totally new concept. Were they really going to be able to bareface their way out of this? Yes, do continue, invited the Vogon. Oh, and, um, interesting rhythmic devices too, continued Arthur, which seemed to counterpoint the, um, uh... He floundered. Ford leaped to his rescue, hazarding, uh, counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor of the, um... He floundered too, but Arthur was ready again. Humanity of the... Vogonity, Ford hissed at him. Oh, yes, Vogonity, sorry, of the poet's compassionate soul. Arthur felt he was on a home stretch now, which contrives through the medium of the verse structure to sublimate this, transcend that, and come to terms with the fundamental dichotomies of the other. He was reaching a triumphant crescendo, and one is left with a profound and vivid insight into, into, uh, 
which suddenly gave out on him. Ford leaped in with the coup de grace. Into whatever it was the poem was about, he yelled. Out of the corner of his mouth, well done, Arthur, that was very good. The Vogon perused them. For a moment, his embittered racial soul had been touched. But he thought, no, too little, too late. His voice took on the quality of a cat snagging brushed nylon. So what you're saying is that I write poetry because underneath my mean, callous, heartless exterior, I really just want to be loved, he said. He paused. Is that right? Ford laughed a nervous laugh. Well, I mean, yes, he said. Don't we all, deep down, you know, uh... The Vogon stood up. No, well, you're completely wrong, he said. I just write poetry to throw my mean, callous, heartless exterior into sharp relief. I'm going to throw you off the ship anyway. Guard, take the prisoners to number three airlock and throw them out. What? shouted Ford. A huge young Vogon guard stepped forward and yanked them out of their straps with his huge blubbery arms. You can't throw us into space, yelled Ford. We're trying to write a book. Resistance is useless, shouted the Vogon guard back at him. It was the first phrase he'd learned when he joined the Vogon guard corps. The captain watched with detached amusement and then turned away. Arthur stared round him wildly. I don't want to die now, he yelled. I've still got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'd be all cross and wouldn't enjoy it. The guard grasped them both firmly round the neck and, bowing deferentially toward his captain's back, hoiked them both protesting out of the bridge. A steel door closed and the captain was on his own again. He hummed quietly and mused to himself, lightly fingering his notebook of verses. "'Hmm,' he said. "'Counterpoint the surrealism of the underlying metaphor.' He considered this for a moment and then closed the book with a grim smile. "'Death's too good for them,' he said. The long, steel-lined corridor echoed to the feeble struggles of the two humanoids clamped firmly under rubbery Vogon armpits. "'This is great,' spluttered Arthur. "'This is really terrific. Let go of me, you brute!' The Vogon guard dragged them on. "'Don't you worry,' said Ford. "'I'll think of something.' He didn't sound hopeful. "'Resistance is useless!' bellowed the guard. "'Just don't say things like that,' stammered Ford. "'How can anyone maintain a positive mental attitude if you're saying things like that?' "'My God!' complained Arthur. "'You're talking about a positive mental attitude, and you haven't even had your planet demolished today.' I woke up this morning and thought I'd have a nice, relaxed day, do a bit of reading, brush the dog. It's now just after four in the afternoon, and I'm already being thrown out of an alien spaceship six light-years from the smoking remains of the Earth. He spluttered and gurgled as the Vogon tightened his grip. All right, said Ford, just stop 
panicking. Who said anything about panicking? snapped Arthur. This is still just the culture shock. You wait till I've settled down into the situation and found my bearings. Then I'll start panicking. Arthur, you're getting hysterical. Shut up. Ford tried desperately to think, but was interrupted by the guard shouting again. Resistance is useless. And you can shut up as well, snapped Ford. Resistance is useless. Oh, give it a rest, said Ford. He twisted his head till he was looking straight up into his captor's face. A thought struck him. Do you really enjoy this sort of thing? he asked suddenly. The Vogon stopped dead, and a look of immense stupidity seeped slowly over his face. Enjoy? he boomed. What do you mean? What I mean, said Ford, is does it give you a full, satisfying life, stomping around, shouting, pushing people out of spaceships? The Vogon stared up at the low steel ceiling, and his eyebrows almost rolled over each other. His mouth slacked. Finally, he said, Well, the hours are good. They'd have to be, agreed Ford. Arthur twisted his head round to look at Ford. Ford, what are you doing? he asked in an amazed whisper. Oh, just trying to take an interest in the world around me, okay? he said. So the hours are pretty good, then, he resumed. The Vogon stared down at him as sluggish thoughts moiled around in the murky depths. Yeah, he said. But now you come to mention it, most of the actual minutes are pretty lousy. Except, he thought again, which required looking at the ceiling, except some of the shouting I quite like. He filled his lungs and bellowed, Resistance is... Sure, yes, interrupted Ford hurriedly. You're good at that, I can tell. But if it's mostly lousy, he said, slowly giving the words time to reach their mark. Then why do you do it? What is it? The girls? The leather? The machismo? Or do you just find that coming to terms with the mindless tedium of it all presents an interesting challenge? Arthur looked backward and forward between them in bafflement. Um, said the guard. Uh, uh. I don't know. I think I just sort of do it, really. My aunt said that a spaceship guard was a good career for a young Vogon. You know, the uniform, the low-slung stun-ray holster, the mindless tedium. There you are, Arthur, said Ford, with the air of someone reaching the conclusion of his argument. You think you've got problems? Arthur rather thought he had. Apart from the unpleasant business with his home planet, the Vogon guard had half-throttled him already, and he didn't like the sound of being thrown into space very much. Try and understand his problem, insisted Ford. Here he is, poor lad, his entire life's work is stamping around, throwing people off spaceships, and shouting added the guard. And shouting, sure, said Ford, patting the blubbery arm clamped round his neck in friendly condescension. 
and he doesn't even know why he's doing it. Arthur agreed this was very sad. He did this with a small, feeble gesture because he was too asphyxiated to speak. Deep rumblings of bemusement came from the guard. Well, now you put it like that, I suppose. Good lad, encouraged Ford. But all right, went on the rumblings. So what's the alternative? Well, said Ford, brightly but slowly, stop doing it, of course. Tell them, he went on, you're not going to do it any more. He felt he ought to add something to that, but for the moment the guard seemed to have his mind occupied pondering that much. Um... said the guard. Um... Well, that doesn't sound that great to me. Ford suddenly felt the moment slipping away. Now, wait a minute, he said. That's just the start, you see. There's more to it than that, you see. But at that moment, the guard renewed his grip and continued his original purpose of lugging his prisoners to the airlock. He was obviously quite touched. No, I think if it's all the same to you, he said, I'd better get you both shoved into this airlock and then go and get on with some other bits of shouting I've got to do. It wasn't all the same to Ford Prefect at all. Come on now, but look, he said less slowly, less brightly. <coughs> said Arthur, without any clear inflection. But hang on, pursued Ford. There's music and art and things to tell you about yet. Ah! Resistance is useless, bellowed the guard, and then added, You see, if I keep it up, I can eventually get promoted to senior shouting officer, and there aren't usually many vacancies for non-shouting and non-pushing people about officers, so I think I'd better stick to what I know. They had now reached the airlock, a large circular steel hatchway of massive strength and weight let into the inner skin of the craft. The guard operated a control, and the hatchway swung smoothly open. But thanks for taking an interest, said the Vogon guard. Bye now. He flung Ford and Arthur through the hatchway into the small chamber within. Arthur lay panting for breath. Ford scrambled round and flung his shoulder uselessly against the reclosing hatchway. But listen, he shouted to the guard, there's a whole world you don't know anything about. Here, how about this? Desperately, he grabbed for the only bit of culture he knew offhand. He hummed the first bar of Beethoven's fifth. Da-da-da-dum! Doesn't that stir anything in you? No, said the guard, not really but I'll mention it to my aunt. If he said anything further after that, it was lost. The hatchway sealed itself tight, and all sound was lost, except the faint distant hum of the ship's engines. They were in a brightly polished cylindrical chamber about six feet in diameter and ten feet long. Ford looked round it, panting, Potentially bright lad, I thought, he said, and slumped against the curved wall. Arthur was still lying in the curve of the floor where he had fallen. He didn't look up. He just lay panting.
We're trapped now, aren't we? Yes, said Ford. We're trapped. Well, didn't you think of anything? I thought you said you were going to think of something. Perhaps you thought of something and I didn't notice. Oh, yes, I thought of something, panted Ford. Arthur looked up expectantly. But unfortunately, continued Ford, it rather involved being on the other side of this airtight hatchway. He kicked the hatch they'd just been thrown through. But it was a good idea, was it? Oh, yes, very neat. What was it? Well, I hadn't worked out the details yet. Not much point now, is there? So, um, what happens next? asked Arthur. Oh, um, well, the hatchway in front of us will open automatically in a few moments, and we will shoot out into deep space, I expect, and asphyxiate. If you take a lungful of air with you, you can last for up to thirty seconds, of course, said Ford. He stuck his hands behind his back, raised his eyebrows, and started to hum an old Beetlejuicean battle hymn. To Arthur's eyes, he suddenly looked very alien. "'So this is it,' said Arthur. "'We are going to die.' "'Yes,' said Ford. "'Except no! Wait a minute!' He suddenly lunged across the chamber at something behind Arthur's line of vision. "'What's this switch?' he cried. "'What? Where?' cried Arthur, twisting round. "'No, I was only fooling,' said Ford. "'We are going to die after all.' He slumped against the wall again and carried on the tune from where he left off. "'You know,' said Arthur, "'it's at times like this, "'when I'm trapped in a Vogon airlock "'with a man from Beetlejuice "'and about to die of asphyxiation in deep space, "'that I really wish I'd listened "'to what my mother told me when I was young.' "'Why? What did she tell you?' "'I don't know. I didn't listen.' "'Oh,' Ford carried on humming. "'This is terrific,' Arthur thought to himself. "'Nelson's column has gone. MacDonald's has gone. "'All that's left is me, and the words, mostly harmless. "'Any second now, all that will be left is mostly harmless. "'And yesterday the planet seemed to be going so well.' "'A motor whirred. "'A slight hiss built into a deafening roar of rushing air as the outer hatchway opened onto an empty blackness studded with tiny, impossibly bright points of light. Ford and Arthur popped into outer space like corks from a toy gun. Chapter 8 the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a wholly remarkable book. It has been compiled and recompiled many times over many years and under many different editorships. It contains contributions from countless numbers of travellers and researchers. The introduction begins like this. Space, it says, is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen, and so on. 
After a while, the style settles down a bit, and it begins to tell you things you really need to know. Like the fact that the fabulously beautiful planet Beth Selamin is now so worried about the cumulative erosion by ten billion visiting tourists a year that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete while on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave. So every time you go to the lavatory there, it is vitally important to get a receipt. To be fair, though, when confronted by the sheer enormity of the distances between the stars, better minds than the one responsible for the guide's introduction have faltered. Some invite you to consider for a moment a peanut in Reading and a small walnut in Johannesburg and other such dizzying concepts. The simple truth is that interstellar distances will not fit into the human imagination. Even light which travels so fast that it takes most races thousands of years to realize that it travels at all, takes time to journey between the stars. It takes eight minutes to journey from the star Sol to the place where the Earth used to be, and four years more to arrive at Sol's nearest stellar neighbor, Alpha Proxima. For light to reach the other side of the galaxy, for it to reach Damagran, for instance, takes rather longer. Five hundred thousand years. The record for hitchhiking this distance is just under five years, but you don't get to see much on the way. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says that if you hold a lungful of air, you can survive in the total vacuum of space for about thirty seconds. However, it does go on to say that what with space being the mind-boggling size it is, the chances of getting picked up by another ship within those 30 seconds are 2 to the power of 276,709 to 1 against. By a totally staggering coincidence, that is also the telephone number of an Islington flat where Arthur once went to a very good party and met a very nice girl whom he totally failed to get off with. She went off with a gatecrasher. Though the planet Earth, the Islington flat, and the telephone have all now been demolished, it is comforting to reflect that they are all in some small way commemorated by the fact that twenty-nine seconds later, Ford and Arthur were rescued. Chapter 9 A computer chattered to itself in alarm as it noticed an airlock open and close itself for no apparent reason. This was because reason was in fact out to lunch. A hole had just appeared in the galaxy. It was exactly a nothingth of a second long, a nothingth of an inch wide, and quite a lot of millions of light years from end to end. As it closed up, lots of paper hats and party balloons fell out of it and drifted off through the universe. A team of seven three-foot-high market analysts fell out of it and died, partly of asphyxiation, partly of surprise. 239,000 lightly fried eggs fell out of it too, materialising in a large, wobbly heap on the famine-struck land of Pogrill 
in the Panzel system. The whole Pogril tribe had died out from famine, except for one last man who died of cholesterol poisoning some weeks later. The nothingth of a second for which the whole existed reverberated backward and forward through time in a most improbable fashion. Somewhere in the deeply remote past, it seriously traumatized a small random group of atoms drifting through the empty sterility of space and made them cling together in the most extraordinarily unlikely patterns. These patterns quickly learned to copy themselves. This was part of what was so extraordinary about the patterns and went on to cause massive trouble on every planet they drifted onto. That was how life began in the universe. Five wild event maelstroms swirled in vicious storms of unreason and spewed up a pavement. On the pavement lay Ford Prefect and Arthur Dent, gulping like half-spent fish. There you are, gasped Ford, scrabbling for a fingerhold on the pavement as it raced through the third reach of the unknown. I told you I'd think of something. Oh, sure, said Arthur. Sure. Bright idea of mine, said Ford, to find a passing spaceship and get rescued by it. The real universe arched sickeningly away beneath them. Various pretend ones flitted silently by like mountain goats. Primal light exploded, splattering space-time as with gobbets of jello. Time blossomed. Matter shrank away. The highest prime number coalesced quietly in a corner and hid itself away forever. Oh, come off it, said Arthur. The chances against it were astronomical. Don't knock it. It worked, said Ford. What sort of ship are we in? asked Arthur, as the pit of eternity yawned beneath them. I don't know, said Ford. I haven't opened my eyes yet. No, nor have I said Arthur. The universe jumped, froze, quivered, and splayed out in several unexpected directions. Arthur and Ford opened their eyes and looked about in considerable surprise. Good God, said Arthur. It looks just like the seafront at South End. Hell, I'm relieved to hear you say that, said Ford. Why? Because I thought I must be going mad. Perhaps you are. Perhaps you only thought I said it. Ford thought about this. Well, did you say it or didn't you? he asked. I think so, said Arthur. Well, perhaps we're both going mad. Yes, said Arthur. We'd be mad, all things considered, to think this was South End. Well, do you think this is South End? Oh, yes. So do I. Therefore, we must be mad. Nice day for it. Yes, said a passing maniac. Who was that? asked Arthur. Who, the man with the five heads and the elderberry bush full of kippers? Yes. I don't know, just someone. Ah. They both sat on the pavement and watched with a certain unease as huge children bounced heavily along the sand and wild horses thundered through the sky, taking fresh supplies of reinforced railings to the uncertain areas.
You know, <coughs> said Arthur with a slight cough, if this is Southend, there's something very odd about it. You mean the way the sea stays steady as a rock and the buildings keep washing up and down, said Ford. Yes, I thought that was odd, too. In fact, he continued, as with a huge bang, Southend split itself into six equal segments, which danced and spun giddily round each other in lewd and licentious formations. There is something altogether very strange going on. Wild yowling noises of pipes and strings seared through the wind. Hot doughnuts popped out of the road for ten pence each. Horrid fish stormed out of the sky, and Arthur and Ford decided to make a run for it. They plunged through heavy walls of sound, mountains of archaic thought, valleys of mood music, bad shoe sessions and footling bats, and suddenly heard a girl's voice. It sounded quite a sensible voice, but it just said, Two to the power of one hundred thousand to one against, and falling. And that was all. Ford skidded down a beam of light and spun round, trying to find a source for the voice, but could see nothing he could seriously believe in. What was that voice? shouted Arthur. I don't know, yelled Ford. I don't know. It sounded like a measurement of probability. Probability? What do you mean? Probability. You know, like two to one, three to one, five to four against. It said two to the power of one hundred thousand to one against. That's pretty improbable, you know. A million-gallon vat of custard upended itself over them without warning. But what does it mean? cried Arthur. What, the custard? No, the measurement of improbability. I don't know. I don't know at all. I think we're on some kind of spaceship. I can only assume, said Arthur, that this is not the first-class compartment. Bulges appeared in the fabric of space-time. Great, ugly bulges. <sighs> said Arthur, as he felt his body softening and bending in unusual directions. South End seems to be melting away. The stars are swirling. A dust bowl. My legs are drifting off into the sunset. My left arm's come off, too. A frightening thought struck him. Hell, he said. How am I going to operate my digital watch now? He wound his eyes desperately around in Ford's direction. Ford, he said, you're turning into a penguin. Stop it. Again came the voice. Two to the power of seventy-five thousand to one against, and falling. Ford waddled around his pond in a furious circle. Hey, who are you? he quacked. Where are you? What's going on? And is there any way of stopping it? Please relax, said the voice pleasantly, like a stewardess in an airliner with only one wing and two engines, one of which is on fire. You are perfectly safe. But that's not the point, raged Ford. The point is that I am now a perfectly safe penguin, and my colleague here is rapidly running out of limbs. It's all right, I've got them back now, said Arthur. Two to the power of fifty thousand to one against, 
and falling, said the voice. Admittedly, said Arthur, they're longer than I usually like them, but... Isn't there anything, squawked Ford in avian fury, you feel you ought to be telling us? The voice cleared its throat. A giant pettifour lolloped off into the distance. Welcome, the voice said, to the starship Heart of Gold. The voice continued. Please do not be alarmed, it said, by anything you see or hear around you. You are bound to feel some initial ill effects as you have been rescued from certain death at an improbability level of two to the power of 276,000 to one against, possibly much higher. We are now cruising at a level of two to the power of 25,000 to one against and falling, and we will be restoring normality just as soon as we are sure what is normal anyway. Thank you. Two to the power of 20,000 to one against and falling. The voice cut out. Ford and Arthur were in a small, luminous, pink cubicle. Ford was wildly excited. Arthur, he said, this is fantastic. We've been picked up by a ship powered by the infinite improbability drive. This is incredible. I heard rumours about it before. They were all officially denied, but they must have done it. They've built the improbability drive. Arthur, this... Arthur, what's happening? Arthur had jammed himself against the door to the cubicle, trying to hold it closed, but it was ill-fitting. Tiny, furry little hands were squeezing themselves through the cracks. Their fingers were ink-stained. Tiny voices chattered insanely. Arthur looked up. Ford, he said, there's an infinite number of monkeys outside who want to talk to us about this script for Hamlet they've worked out. Chapter 10 the infinite improbability drive is a wonderful new method of crossing vast interstellar distances in a mere nothingth of a second without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace. It was discovered by a lucky chance and then developed into a governable form of propulsion by the Galactic Government's research team on Damagran. This, briefly, is the story of its discovery. The principle of generating small amounts of finite improbability by simply hooking the logic circuits of a Bambleweeny 57 submeson brain to an atomic vector plotter suspended in a strong Brownian motion producer, say a nice hot cup of tea, were of course well understood, and such generators were often used to break the ice at parties by making all the molecules in the hostess's undergarments leap simultaneously one foot to the left, in accordance with the theory of indeterminacy. Many respectable physicists said that they weren't going to stand for this, partly because it was a debasement of science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those sorts of parties. Another thing they couldn't stand was the perpetual failure they encountered in trying to construct a machine which could generate the infinite improbability field needed to flip a spaceship across the mind-paralyzing distances between the farthest stars, and in the end they grumpily announced that such a machine was virtually impossible. Then 
One day, a student who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning this way. If, he thought to himself, such a machine is a virtual impossibility, then it must logically be a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out exactly how improbable it is, feed that figure into the finite improbability generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and turn it on. He did this and was rather startled to discover that he had managed to create the long-sought-after golden infinite improbability generator out of thin air. It startled him even more when, just after he was awarded the Galactic Institute's Prize for Extreme Cleverness, he got lynched by a rampaging mob of respectable physicists who had finally realized that the one thing they really couldn't stand was a smart-ass. <laughs>